I just wanted to uh, start off this series by highlighting a presupposition that I have. And, and so uh, the first is, is the last, uh, if you'd go back actually, Kim, the two things I've highlighted here, verse 12. Now, like I said, this is a prayer of Moses. Uh, if, you, if you go to the Bible and you read Psalm 90, it actually says prayer of Moses. Um, and this, this specific version is the NLT. So I realize not every version says it exactly this way. And in fact, I'll tell you which way most versions say it. But I really like how the NLT says this. So in verse 12, it says, Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. Um, other versions say, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So this verse is saying that it's an interesting prayer, isn't it? Lord, if you show us, help us to count or number our days to show us how short life is so that we can gain a heart of wisdom. And then the last verse, he says, and may the Lord our God show us his approval and make our efforts successful. Yes, make our efforts successful. Now, you may notice the repetition, and, and many, many of you may know this, and I'm going to maybe talk about this more later, is that was the, in Hebrew uh, literature, that's the way they emphasized something. So they didn't have the same kind of uh, uh, punctuation we did. They didn't have exclamation marks and bold face and italics and that sort of thing. So when, in literature, when they wanted to emphasize something, they repeated it. And you might notice that in the Bible. So... This is Moses saying, make our efforts successful. Yes, make our efforts successful. Really emphasize. Now, the presupposition that I have, that, that, that I hope most of us have, and if that's why I'm not really going to spend time talking about this except for a couple minutes to start off, is that God wants you to be successful. The thing that I'm grateful for is for the past probably 30, 40 years in the church, and the reason this is a presupposition is my assumption is that most of you know this. Um, you, you know, just being exposed to most popular streams in the body of Christ, if you watch like Christian television or whatever, a lot of, a lot of great teaching on this. God wants you successful. He wants to heal you. He wants to prosper you. He wants you to have a good life now. Jesus came to give you life and life in abundance, right? And so the, the, the thing that I want to ask, though, the, the, and the, this is great. My, I'm glad that it's been emphasized so much in the church, okay? Like, here's the seven keys to success or whatever, right? Just listen to Joel Osteen once, and you'll, you'll hear it all. So, okay. My question is, what is success? What is success? Right? So I'm going to try and answer that throughout this entire message. But I want you to know that, first of all, God wants you to be successful. But the critical factor in that is, what is success? Right? Well, how does God define success? The thing that is not so great is I think often our definition of success is wrong. So next slide, please. Um, so I already said this. God wants us to be successful in life. The here and now. So that's, that's true. I, I'm a full believer of that. However, in my opinion, success many times is perceived as the way society defines it rather than the way God views it. Okay, let me give you an example. John the Baptist. John the Baptist, according to society's definition of success, was very unsuccessful. He lived in the wilderness he ate locusts and honey. 
He wore camel skin for clothing, and he died in his early 30s. Right? You give anyone a biography like that nowadays, we'd be like, that person is unsuccessful. In God's eyes, very successful. Right? Jesus said he was the greatest man born of a woman uh, up until that point. And so God's view of success is quite different than how our society and culture define success. The problem is the church often defines success the way society does. And that's where things can go wrong. Okay, probably one of the biggest issues I think is that success is not only defined the way our culture sees it, it's often defined through the eyes of the temporal rather than the eternal. So we've so emphasized success in the here and now, and you've heard so many messages about it, not very many messages about how to be successful forever, doesn't focus much on eternity. It focuses on how to be successful here and now. Like I said, nothing wrong with that, but that's, half the, that's not even half the story. That, I would argue that's a very, 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 very small part of what success actually is. Yes, God wants to heal you. Amen. God wants to prosper you. Fully believe it. I can show you a ton of scriptures on that, right? Fully believe it. More than that, however, God wants you to succeed for eternity. He wants you to plan to be successful forever. And if if we focus on the temporal and exclude the eternal, then this can create a blur uh, in understanding which results in misguided pursuits. Let me give you an example. And, And like I say, there's a balance to this because it's not wrong to try and be successful in this life and it's not wrong to plan to be successful for this life. That's wisdom. I'll show you a ton of Proverbs on that if you want. Let me give you an example, though. Many of us probably know people, and hopefully some of ourselves, have been planning for retirement for years and years and years and years, and have thought about it, especially if we're getting older, for years and years and years and years, and have thought about what we're going to do, planning financially for it, right? And this isn't wrong. This is wisdom. But think about it. You're planning for decades to live kind of all right for 15 or 20 years. And then you, you know, go to be with the Lord. And that's okay. The problem is, not, not a problem, but I think, unfortunately, you don't hear many people planning for eternity, do you? If people would put as much time planning for eternity as they do for retirement, there would be a lot more, how can I say this? healthy Christians, (laughs) okay? There'd be a lot more healthy Christians and we'd be living totally different. All of us would be if this was at the forefront. And unfortunately, and this is to our detriment, I don't hear much about eternity in the church. The only time I hear about it is evangelists. Heaven or hell, make the decision now, right? That's fine because that's true. We don't hear Often, preachers talking about how do Christians prepare for eternity. The tragedy is there's tons of scriptures on it. And you don't hear them often in the church, and that is a tragedy. And I'll I'll talk about that more later. But this shift in focus will change your life completely. If you completely view everything you do from an eternal perspective and the, and the actions that you make are going to have eternal ramifications forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, going to change the way you live. Totally change the way you live. So, 
Next slide. Adopting an eternal perspective is key to a healthy Christian walk. It's one of the main keys. And I'll actually show you that later. Because one day, we're all going to stand before the judge of the universe, Jesus Christ. And if we've made our life count through godly wisdom, remember the, the prayer of Moses. Lord, remind us how short life is so that we can gain in wisdom. That's actually part of how you gain wisdom is, is remembering these days are numbered. We have a short time in life. James chapter 4 says it's like a vapor. Here now, then it's gone. It's like the grass, right? This life is nothing. Honestly, nothing if you think from eternal perspective. Anything in just mathematics, anything divided by eternity is zero. This is zero life. Literally zero time. Zero. Any t no matter how long you live, in the grand scheme of things, zero. So let me give you an example. Actually, let me give you an illustration. If you live, say just hypothetically, if for the next 24 hours, what you do is going to determine the next thousand years of your life. Imagine a thousand years. It's hard to even think back a thousand years. Like what was happening in the year 1000? I don't know. You know, crusades maybe. I don't, I don't even know. A thousand years. So you, the, what you do in the next 24 hours is going to determine how you live, where you're going to live, who your neighbors are going to be, the kind of job you're going to have, the way you live for the next 24 hours. How many of you would live for the next thousand years? In, in other words, for the next 24 hours, you're going to do your best knowing that what you do in the next 24 hours is going to determine the next thousand years. We would all live, right? We would, for the next 24 hours, live so that the next thousand years is going to be awesome. All of us would. The thing is, if you think about it, this life, is, it's actually going to determine, and I'm going to show you tons of scripture on this, determine what we're going to do for eternity, how we're going to live, how close we're going to be with the Lord, who our neighbors are going to be, honestly, a ton of things. How we live now is going to determine forever how we live. The question I have, why aren't we living like we would live for that 24 hours for this life? Because this life is nothing in, this, in, in, in regards to eternity, in relatively speaking, right? But if, and you can see if you adopt that perspective of how I live now, which is in the grand scheme of things, nothing. 70, 80, 90, God willing, 120 years, if the Lord tarries. Nothing in the grand scheme of eternity. Why isn't this at the forefront of our mind? Always, right? Why don't you hear this preached constantly in the church? Because this is critical. Unfortunately, we're going to have so many unprepared Christians who are going to stand before the Lord one day completely shocked. And I'll show you scripture on this. Completely shocked on judgment day because they lived irresponsibly in this life. Because they, they, they were misguided and they missed the mark because they didn't have this eternal perspective. Now, so we're standing before Jesus Christ. If we've made our life count through godly wisdom, then we'll be rewarded eternally. These rewards are forever. And I'm going to talk about eternity in a couple minutes. We can't even comprehend what forever means. We really can't. If we've been misguided in our affairs, if we live for the temporal... We're either going to be punished, scripturally speaking, or suffer eternal loss forever. Okay? So, it is wisdom to find out what God is looking for, isn't it? 
It is wisdom, like the prayer of Moses, for us to know what are the standards God is going to use to judge us eternally and to live accordingly. Right? That's just wisdom. Because it would be foolish if we, any of us, if we met someone who said, I know the next 24 hours is going to determine the next thousand years of my life, but I'm just going to ignore that. It'll just pan out. I'll just go and get drunk for the next 24 hours. That would be foolish, right? We'd be like, what are you doing? Just one day, you know, is going to influence how you live for a thousand years. Live for the, that, the thousand years, not the day. You know, I'm, maybe I'll talk about this someday. That's why God said he hated Esau. Esau gave up his birthright. His birthright for a bowl of stew. Why was God so mad about that? And if, sorry, if you know, I'll do, I'm just assuming you guys know that story, but if you don't, maybe someday I'll talk about it. But in Romans 9, he, he uses that as an illustration to say he lived for the temporal. He lived for the flesh, that one bowl of stew because he was hungry in the moment, gave up his birthright for the rest of his life for the moment. He was using that as an analogy for salvation. You're going to live foolishly in this life that's zero time, so foolishly, Right? That's why God is so harsh on people who squander this life. Because that is foolish. Eternally speaking. Foolish to live like that. And it's wisdom to say, I'm going to find out. At least spend some hours finding out what God is going to require of me on judgment day. At least a few hours. I'm going to spend decades planning for my retirement. Why can't I spend an equivalent amount of time, hopefully at least finding out what God wants of me, and live that way, right? So our focus should be to make our life count, not only for today. Because if you don't live in the temporal, we live in a temporal realm. We, got, we can't squander that either, right? And like I said, God wants us to succeed now. So that's smart to plan for retirement. Don't mishear me. But we should be always having an eternal perspective at the forefront of everything we do. You know, I heard, and, and, and some of you might remember this, I don't even know, this, this is a, I preached this in September, about knowing the will of God. The Lord told Rick Joyner, at least, I think it's like 80% of Christians are outside of the geographical will of God for their life. When I say that, they're not living where God wants them to live. If you're not living where God wants you to live, how many of you know you're going to miss the rest of it? Because where you live is critical for what God's called you to do, right? The people you're supposed to influence and meet and hang out with, the job you're supposed to have. The vast majority of Christians, he was told, are outside of the geographical will of God. Why? Because they don't inquire of God where to live. What are they basically, you can ask, and you know how you test this, just ask people, why did you move where you moved? If the number one answer isn't God told me to do it, it's something else like, oh, there's a job opportunity, or my family was there and I wanted to live by them, or whatever. I'm just throwing out examples. You need to fill in the blanks. If it wasn't God specifically told me to live there, then you should really, I would recommend, taking some time and saying, God, am I in your geographical will of, for my life? Because if not, you're going to miss it, right? It's critical that we seek the Lord's will. This is sort of, I wasn't planning to talk about this today. And let me say this, I'm preaching to myself, I don't have it all figured out, what I'm going to be speaking about today 
and for however many sessions the Lord is going to have me speak about this, there will be times guaranteed you're going to feel conviction by the Holy Spirit. There's no condemnation, though. This is for all of our sakes, right? And I'm preaching to myself, too, and I want you to know that. There was a time in my life where I was so, because it's so easy, it's actually natural for us to think in terms of the temporal. Because we live in a temporal realm. Because it's so hard for us to think in eternal terms, we live for the day, right? And we don't often think about eternity. There was a time in my life where I felt like the Lord said, I want you to listen to one sermon every Saturday on this topic of adopting an eternal perspective. And I did that for a season. I forget how long, quite a while. Every Saturday. Because it's so easy to get caught up in the moment so to speak, with life, with our job, with our family, and forget. We're not living for the moment. We're living for eternity, right? And so we almost have to constantly remind ourselves, look, yes, it's okay. We need to take care of our needs, but we also need to be constantly thinking about eternity. And that's why it's a tragedy that the church has neglected this, for the most part, not everyone. But I don't hear preachers often talk about this. And to our detriment, like I said, So, if you feel conviction, that is a good thing. That's the Holy Spirit saying, look, I'm giving you this opportunity to repent. There's no condemnation, and you can even ignore them if you want to. I don't recommend that. But if, if you're feeling convicted, and you're like, wait a minute, I never sought the Lord about where I'm supposed to live, then I'd say, why not spend some time praying? In fact, a lot of time praying, God, I, and here's a prayer for you, Colossians Chapter 1, verse 9, specifically through 11, but I would go to verse 14. Prayer of the Apostle starts off like this. I pray that God will fill you with the knowledge of his will. Through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of him. Notice, That you would be filled with the knowledge of his will so that, it actually says, so that, and these five things follow. If you're in his will, these things will happen. You will live a life pleasing to him, worthy of the Lord rather, please him in every way, bear fruit in every good work, grow in the knowledge of God, be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. And then it ends, and we joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light, for he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have uh, redemption of sins. Okay, that's the prayer of Paul. I would say if you don't know what God's will is for your life, pray that prayer all the time and God will answer. This is my will for your life because he guarantees it. It's according to scripture. Why? Oh, sorry. (laughs) Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Yeah, the emphasis that I was talking about was 9 through 11, though. Okay, now, let me give you a couple, like, we'll see, okay, we'll see how much I get through today. Matthew 6, 9 through 21, just to show you this is, the Jesus tells us to do this, right? Don't store up, talking about eternity now, don't, and remember, I gave the, the example of retirement, Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, which is what we're doing when we're, like I said, it's wisdom the plan for a time. But I'm just saying, don't store for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy. The temporal realm is what he's saying. Foolish to just think about that because it's going to pass away. 
in one way or another, whether it's from vermin, whether whatever. And where thieves break in and steal, you can lose it in a day. The dollar could crash tomorrow. Then what, are all, what, what did you do for those decades? All gone in a moment. Remember in 2008, I forget who it was, but it's someone that my pastors, John and Patricia Bootsva knew, I think they knew personally, or they heard about this anyway, from Iceland, lost a million dollars in the bank in one day. I think it's their entire life savings because of that 2008 thing. That could happen any moment. Imagine you spent your whole life saving that and then it's gone. Wouldn't it have been better if you spent your life storing treasures in heaven instead? Because that's not going to happen, guaranteed, according to Jesus, right? So he says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moss and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Key scripture, because if our treasure is in this realm, our heart's going to be in this realm. Our heart's going to be in the world if that's where our treasure is. If our treasure, if we're living for eternity, if that's where our treasure is, we're going to live for eternity because that's where our heart is. That's where the focus should be, okay? So like I said, not wrong to be successful in this life, but we should be more than that thinking about, okay, storing up treasures in heaven. This is an exhortation from Jesus. Jesus promised rewards for eternity, eternal rewards. He's not ashamed of it more than anyone else in the Bible, I think, combined. Jesus, Jesus, do this, right? Pray in secret, then you'll be rewarded by your Father. Fast in secret, then you'll be rewarded. Over and over and over again. Jesus, this is a main motivation. Talking about eternal rewards. This is from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about this constantly. Now, also to show you in Colossians... This is an imperative. You ever hear that saying, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? No offense if you use that, but I think that's a doctrine of whatever, fill in the blanks. Not God. Not God. I've never met the man who's been so heavenly minded he's no earthly good. In fact, in order to be any earthly good, you have to be heavenly minded. I'll prove it. Look at this verse right here. Colossians chapter 3, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, talking about heaven. This is an imperative, it's not a suggestion, right? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now he says your heart has to be, but also your mind. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Okay? For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, uh, Christ who is your life appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. Imperative. This is not a suggestion, like I said. Set your mind, be heavenly minded in order to be earthly good. Don't be earthly minded or you're going to not do so well in life. Which is what Jesus essentially said in Matthew, right? Don't store for yourself treasures on earth. Store for yourself treasures in heaven. Think heavenly minded, right? Now I'm going to give you a quote from C.S. Lewis. Isn't he a genius? I love C.S. Lewis. He has the best quotes. Him and like Mark Twain and a couple others have the best quotes. Anyway, a this is so a uh, from mere Christianity. A continued looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just the, those who thought most about the next. 
It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Listen to this. I love this. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. That's right, C.S. Lewis, amen, right? That's great. So, my exhortation, let's be heavenly-minded, folks, right? So that we can be earthly good. So, that was just the beginning of what I'm wanting to talk about, but we'll see what happens today. Of what I'm going to be focusing on for however long. Living life from an eternal perspective, okay? Because like I said, I'll show you a scripture that says this is one of the elementary, fundamental teachings of Jesus Christ. Eternal judgment. Neglected by the church. But it's an elementary teaching. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'll show you that. This is actually supposed to be what our foundation is. is talking about this and knowing this. is is like Christianity 101. And yet we don't really talk about it much, do we? Except for, like I said, maybe evangelists. So, living from an eternal perspective. Um, here's a verse I, I'm going to talk about and focus on a little bit today. It's from Ecclesiastes. I, lo- I love this verse. If you can read it, I'll read it out loud. It's from Ecclesiastes 3, and I'm just, I, 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 yeah, I'm just picking certain verses to emphasize um, because just for relevancy today. But anyway, he's made everything beautiful in his time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. We're talking about the heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Isn't that interesting? God set this in every human heart, but our minds can't fathom it. We can't. Our our finite minds can't comprehend eternal concepts, perpetual concepts like that. Because we live in this, that's all we know is this temporal realm. Oh, and then he's, okay. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken from it. God does so that the people will fear him. Talking about sovereignty. Okay? Now, this is interesting because it has both. Talking about sovereignty, right? Everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing will be taken away. Whatever has already been, what has been before, and God will call the past to account. I said to myself, now here's free will. God will bring into judgment... Both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Because God's given us free will. Notice this is in the context of eternity. And I'm going to show you like in a few minutes that that is, you'll notice that the judgment seat of Christ is always in the context of eternity. Because it's going to determine how we're living for eternity, isn't it? It's interesting that he says that right after he talks about eternity here. Because we have free will, God's going to take that all into consideration. So today, God willing, I'm going to focus first on the first part, eternity in the heart, talk a little bit about eternity, then I'm going to at least start on eternal judgments. But don't worry, the point of today is to start this series, and then I'm going to elaborate more in the future. So if we run out of time, then we'll just start off next time, right? So um, anyway, so eternity in the heart. Now... So this is the first part of that verse. Like I said, he's set turning the human heart. And it's it's because it's the heart and not the mind. How can I say this? Every human being, regardless of whether they're saved or not, knows there's an eternity. 
in their minds they might deny it because they can't fathom it. They think it's foolishness, but in their heart they know. And, and I remember last year, now this might offend some people, but the Lord led Trish and I to, re, to watch the uh, uh, Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies. A lot of prophetic people say that that is a prophetic word for the, anyway, and I believe it, but I, I understand that some people don't uh, watch that, and that's fine. The reason I think those movies are so popular and resonate with so many people, whether they're saved or not, is because there's eternal elements that resonate with people's hearts, and they're drawn to it. They know in their heart that there's another world, that things last forever, but they might not acknowledge it in their minds, but they love that movie. I remember when I watched those movies, I was just like, yeah, there's some eternal, latent, eternal, whatever you want to call it, aspects that are uh, woven throughout that, um, are, that you're drawn to because God's placed it in our hearts. And people want to believe, even if their minds deny that there's a God, they know in their heart there is. The scariest, uh, I won't go there. Now, this is a, in the New Testament, <laughs> Romans 1. This is kind of saying something a little bit similar, just in a different way. For since the create, verse 20, sorry, Romans 1, verse 20, I have the reference at the end there. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, we're talking about eternity, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Right, And if you know that where this verse is located, you know what he talks about next. The point is, saved or unsaved, we all know. We don't have an excuse. He's placed eternity in our hearts, and that's why we're going to be held accountable for it. All of us. So what is eternity? That's a good question, because like I said, you can't fathom it. The Bible even kind of alludes to the fact that we can't comprehend what eternity is, so what is eternity? Now this is kind of funny. Here's two definitions of eternity from two different dictionaries. This is Webster's. They define it as limitless time. Maybe some of us would define it as that, right? That makes sense. Limitless time, no, no end, no beginning, whatever. Look at how a different dictionary, this is the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language, a state of existing outside of time. Now, now what I want to draw your attention to, and here's the question, how can one dictionary define eternity to exist within the state of time and another the outside of time? Think of how ridiculous it would be if you read one science textbook that said fish are amphibians that live inside of water, and then a different one said they're fi fish are amphibians that live outside of water. Which is it? That they live inside of water or outside of water? These dictionaries don't even, aren't even, don't even uh, jive with each other. They, they're saying opposite things, right? Two different dictionaries, two different definitions. Now, there's grace because, like I said, we cannot. Why is this the case? We can't comprehend eternity. Think about anything that's eternal. Like, for example, a bottomless pit. We can't even think, fathom a bottomless pit. First of all, falling forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever is one thing, but no bottom is another, right? Like, forever falling. You know what's interesting? A bottomless pit is referenced seven times in the Bible, so I guess it exists. But how you can't comprehend perpetual concepts like that because we only know temporal concepts. Or just think about God. There's, okay, he created everything. What happened before God? Like, who created God? No one, obviously. But just think, so he always just was, right? Or he always, or, or, or fathom like the end of the universe. It doesn't, like, you can't. 
They're because it doesn't end, right? I'm just talking about trying to actually fathom these eternal concepts impossible. So how, how do we have a chance? And that's what Ecclesiastes, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. We just can't. We need help from the Holy Spirit. So what is eternity if we can't comprehend it? I'm going to give you a definition. Now this definition is long, but it's from a book. And I'm going to tell you just a little bit about this book. Because I'm going to, this book changed my life. And I'm not exaggerating. You know, there's sometimes just books that seriously change your life. Now I'm advertising this book. I didn't mean to. But there was a season, and some of you might remember my testimony, when I got totally transformed by the Lord in 2007. And dramatic encounters. I'll... So what's interesting is the Lord led me to buy this book in 2006. Before all that happened, then in the spring of 2007, read that book. You know, there's sometimes I think, God, if you buy a book, pray about when to read it. Because there's a moment when it'll have the most impact on you. And during that time of my life, my goodness, seriously, not very many books that I can think of really changed, like, my theology dramatically. But this one did, in some ways. Because it's all backed up by scripture, so you can't argue with it. What I love about it, it's written by John Bevere, driven by eternity. I haven't even said it yet. Driven by eternity, John Bevere. What I love about it, he is so based on the Bible. And what I love is he shouts, and this is what I want to do. He shouts scriptures that Christians are ashamed of. Do you know what I mean? You know, you read the Bible and there's scriptures that you never hear people preaching on because it's kind of embarrassing. Think about the Psalms. Think about contemporary worship. We often will incorporate psalms into our worship songs, which is great. You never hear parts of the psalms, though, like, Lord, kill my enemies, right? Bring them to ruin. We kind of erase those parts of the psalms and just, you know, <laughs> open the eyes of my heart, Lord, or whatever. That's great. I love that song, by the way. That was awesome, Pierre. I no, seriously, those, I love Pierre's selection of songs. I just, whatever. I, I'm making a point. Right? We're kind of embarrassed by those scriptures or whatever. You can name a whole bunch. What I love about people who are not ashamed of the gospel, like John Bevere's, I love this guy because he just, this is in the Bible, people. Deal with it, right? And so in this book, he's just, look, this is what the Bible says. You can argue, try and rationalize it away, but this is the truth, right? And that's how I want to be. I want to be like, look, okay, I'm going to try and, uh, uh, shout things that people whisper if they're the Bible, if they're biblical truths, I'm not going to be, I'm going to try not to be by God's grace embarrassed by them and just let's talk about them, especially important ones like this, like our eternal destinies, you know? Why is this ignored by people? Oh, and politically incorrect to talk about hell. Listen, right? We don't want to go there because we're going to be held accountable to God. Why were you ashamed to tell people about the gospel? Now they're, now they're in hell because you're being politically correct. Uh-uh. We cannot fall into that trap. Cannot do it. Wow. I'm going on a lot of tangents today. Okay. What's eternity? Oh. No, that's probably all I wanted to say. Transform my life. Learning about this, which is, you know, I'm glad the Lord, I really felt like the Lord told me to preach this. I don't know how many messages, but I'm grateful. Because this message is so impacting. If you open your hearts to hear it, and that's the key. Like I said, the Holy Spirit might convict you uh, more than once. But that is awesome. Because he's giving us an opportunity to repent, which is just turning towards him and changing our direction if, if need be. 
maybe our theology needs some correction. We all, right, we're not perfect. All of us need some correction. So what is eternity? This is from the book that I'm going to be using a lot of to talk about this because it's just a great book on eternity. Eternity is everlasting. There's no end. However, it's not just a matter of ceaseless time as it's not subject to time. Eternity transcends time. To speak of eternity in terms of merely perpetual duration is to miss the full picture. To capture the best view of eternity, we must look at God himself. He's not limited in power, knowledge, wisdom, understanding, and all glory, just to name a few. He is self-existent, forever was, forever will be God. He's called the everlasting Father. That's Isaiah 9.6. Young's literal translation reads, Father of Eternity. He's called the King of Eternity. That's 1 Timothy 1.17. All that is eternal is found in him. In fact, eternity itself is found in him. All that's outside of him is temporal and will change. No matter how good, noble, powerful, or enduring it may seem, it will eventually cease. Even the earth and universe will change, but he will not. I like that definition. So there's a ton of, of scriptures on eternity. I just wanted to give a couple that I like. God inhabits eternity. This is Isaiah 43, 13. Even from eternity I am he, and there is no one who can rescue from my hand. I act, and who can revoke or reverse it? Remember I talked about humility a couple times? Uh, or whatever, before Christmas. I love this verse. The next one. This is Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place in eternity with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. Remember, the humble are going to be hanging out with him for eternity. It's the humble. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You know what I love about this verse? I'll tell you about this guy, and I'll try and remember the details. His name's Arthur Stace, okay? This, this guy lived quite a while ago. He, I think he's born in 1885. He, was, he just lived a life of, like, he was, his parents were alcoholics. He was into that. He actually went to prison at the age of 15. Um, you know, you name, like he, I think he worked at brothels as a lookout or whatever, right? He just one of those people, stole because he was hungry, like, just didn't live a really good life. At the age of 32, got saved. Thank God. So he's from, he's from Sydney, Australia. Got saved. And when he got saved, I think if I remember right, his pastor was talking about eternity. And that just gripped him. And then like two years later, there was a visiting evangelist, if I remember right, who preached this. Uh, his, the name of the sermon, I think, was Echoes of Eternity. And this verse I just... Uh, uh, quoted Isaiah 57 15 he preached on it and he said something like this I have to paraphrase eternity eternity how I long to sound and shout eternity to the streets of Sydney and then he asked a question something like where will you be for eternity or something that so spoke to this man named Arthur Stace. He started weeping, and the Lord spoke to him oh, that he was to do that. So what he started doing, now this is in 1932. He, every morning, or every, most mornings of the week, would wake up at 5 in the morning before everyone was awake and write eternity all over Sydney. 
like every hundred yards or whatever, on the ground, a train station, so people would see it every day in chalk. The interesting thing is, and this is kind of miraculous, he was illiterate and could hardly even write his name legibly. But he wrote eternity in, what do they call copper plate handwriting, the really nice handwriting. Couldn't write anything. I don't think he could write anything else. For 35 years, almost every morning wrote eternity all over Sydney. And people were like, didn't know who was doing it. It was a big mystery. They called him like, I think they called him Mr. Eternity. Who is this guy writing eternity all over Sydney? So people would see it every day. And it went on, I forget how many years he did this. <laughs> every morning or whatever. And, you know, he got caught, I don't know how many years later, like maybe 20 years later by his priest who saw him one morning, because I think he cleaned the church or something, writing eternity on the sidewalk outside the church or something. And so he got caught. But for years, no one knew who was doing it. They interviewed him, and that's when he said that, like, he's illiterate, couldn't even write his, you know, name hardly, but he didn't, he said he can't understand it to this day. He could write that, like, in really nice handwriting. In fact, he got arrested 24 times for doing this because there was a law in Sydney that you couldn't do that kind of thing. And, you know, he, every time he got let off because he said, I have permission from a higher power. <laughs> they so honored this man that in the town hall square, they have eternity, just the way he wrote it in bronze, I think by a waterfall, to commemorate this guy. He's like a legend in Sydney. They have this whole display in their museum, like eternity, honoring this guy. He died in 1967. Wrote this for 35 years. Imagine doing this for 35 years. In the year 2000, they had eternity lit up to bring in the millennium. And at the 2000 Olympics when it was in Sydney, they had to honor him. Eternity. Imagine that. How many millions of people watched the Olympics? Eternity. Think about that. His, his, <laughs> and he said after about eight to ten years, he wanted to change it. And he was going to write like sin or God or something like that. But God wouldn't let him. He said, no, write eternity. And think about that. Because eternity's in the heart, and it makes you think, right? Eternity, just think of that. Where are you spending eternity, is the question. So anyway, that was another rabbit trail. But that was, uh, that sermon that impacted him so much was this verse here from Isaiah. Now, this is a, this is a one I really like from John 17. Talking about defining eternity. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. This is the last prayer, right? Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he was crucified. Father, the hours come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who you've given him. Now this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is to know God intimately, and that's why Jesus came. So we, to know God. You know what I, what's interesting about this verse? You can correct me if I'm wrong. You guys might know this, but I heard John Arnett talk about this. You know his, one of his main messages is the father heart of God? Jack Winter went to his church in Stratford, I think it was like 1980, whatever, three, whatever, early 80s, maybe 1980, preached on the father heart of God. It was the first time John, I think, heard it, and he was so impacted. And I think if I remember right, this was the verse that so spoke to John because John had this misconception that God was just out to get you. And Jesus was like the awesome guy who's interceding for you. Like, 
You, and it's not something you verbalize like that, where it's like, God is, oh, God, the Father. But it, it was something that you just, because of your, the way you're brought up, you kind of think that, right? Like, God's a mean judge, and Jesus is awesome. Then he realized, what's heaven? What's eternal life? To know the Father, right? And that, was, that message was so impactful. And then look at how that message of the Father heart of God impacted the world. Because God used John or not to preach that through and emphasize that in the revival. And that it's it, just a neat tidbit was, I think, this verse that so rocked him in the early 80s. So the point that I want to make is without an internal perspective, we will not even begin to understand God. How can we know God intimately if we don't, we don't even think about eternity, right? Because that's what eternal life is, is to know God. We need to think about these things. We need to think about eternity because God's eternal. And if we want to know him and we want to understand God, we won't even be able to begin to be able to do so if we don't think about these things. Okay, so back to Ecclesiastes. Uh, that the one, now, the second part I wanted to at least talk about a little bit today. Let's see. Okay, just checking how long I've been talking here. God will bring into judgment, talking about the second, right? Both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity to judge every deed. So I want to talk about eternal judgments. Eternal judgments. Now remember earlier I was talking, now here's the verse I was alluding to earlier. Hebrews 6, 1 to 3. I want you to consider this. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. The element, we all know what elementary school is. We've all probably done it, I'm guessing. What does, what's the point of elementary school? It teach you the basics, the fundamentals. Imagine going to university or graduate school not knowing how to read or write or add or subtract. The things you learn in elementary school wouldn't be possible. These are the elementary teachings about Christ. If you don't think about these things or know them, how are you going to do university? You know, the, the author of Hebrews rebukes them for not be, him not being able to give them meat and be on still drinking milk. This is the milk. The elementary teachings of Christ. And be taken forward to maturity. Not laying again the foundation. Why don't you say Foundation. Foundation, because I'm going to be talking about foundation. Foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God. Instruction about cleansing rites, some versions say baptisms. So these first three things have been pretty emphasized in the church, thank God. The laying on of hands, that's another elementary teaching that's been neglected. Fortunately, until about 20 years ago, now Randy Clark, have you ever heard... He talks all about the, the doctrine of the laying on of hands from this movement. He, went, he has awesome biblical teachings on that. But for the most part, been neglected, still is. The laying on of hands. Remember, this is the elementary teachings. Why, doesn't, why don't people talk about those that more? Anyway, the resurrection of the dead, don't really hear that much sometimes. You know, you hear about Jesus' resurrection, but I'm talking about our resurrection. And eternal judgment. Of course, I have that highlighted and underlined, so that's what I'm talking about. The reason I'm emphasizing is this is an elementary teaching of Christ, pretty much neglected in the church. Not completely, 
pretty much. Some streams, thank God, like IHOP, others shout this, and I love that. But for the most part, neglected. But that is foundational, right? You see that. Foundation. We need to be talking about these things to build that solid foundation. If we don't have a solid foundation, we're going to fall. So this is critical to, to, to talk about this, right? Look at this. Now, some of you might be thinking, and, and I don't blame you, that this is irrelevant for believers. I hope you don't think that. But some of you might, and that's fine. Well, no, it's not. You're going to see why that's not fine. You're going to see why that's not fine. All we think about is heaven and hell, and you might not think much about it. Some people think God is a communist. I'm being provocative for a reason. But really, if you think about it, we're all saved by grace. We're all going to be the same. You just think about how people think of heaven. God's going to treat us all the same. We're all going to be playing harps on a cloud or whatever. No. We are not going to be treated the same. In fact, our eternal dwelling, destiny, what we're going to be doing for eternity, all these things are completely, completely based off what we do in this life. People have a problem with that because it goes against their theology of grace. So they're like, hey, wait a minute, we cannot do works, right? That is true. That is true. We can't earn it. We can't earn salvation. We cannot earn. I hope that you guys have a solid foundation. Because if not, you could hear teaching like this and get off. You cannot earn salvation, period. That is where people go awry because then they take that to a conclusion that's erroneous, like I talk about this sometimes, any truth taken to an extreme becomes untruth. They take this to a wrong, and, and then they treat God, it's all grace, nothing I do is going to have any impact on eternity. I can't do anything. I can't earn anything. I can't, what, you guys probably know what I'm talking about, right? A lot of people think this. Because it's grace, so we can't do anything. No matter what I do, if I do this, if I do that, it's all going to be the same. It's all going to pan out. No way. You have to write off a huge, significant portion of the Bible if you think that. And I'm going to trumpet those, those types of scriptures to show you that that, honestly, the false grace teachings that are going around today have that at their core. And I'm going to show you that is wrong. That is wrong. No way. What you do now matters tremendously and is going to have eternal ramifications for the rest of eternity. I'm going to give you this quote now and then go back to that verse because it's relevant to what I'm talking about. The slide after, Kim. This is a key point. What we do with the cross determines where we will spend eternity. Grace. Heaven, hell. The way we live as believers determines how we are going to spend eternity. Do you see the difference? Heaven or hell, grace. We cannot earn that. Okay? Heaven, hell, God's grace. It's a free gift. But how we live this life as believers is going to determine a whole bunch. A whole bunch. What we're going to be doing, the positions we have in heaven, how close we're going to be to the Lord. I'm talking about positionally like I mean, I'll show you scriptures to back all this up. Thank God it's a series, because I could not do that today, but I'll show you them. 
What we do as believers, and, and you just read the Gospels of Jesus Christ. He says this, great will be those in heaven who do my words, right? You see that in the Sermon on the Mount. If you tell people that uh, not to do these things, you're going to be the least in the kingdom of heaven. If you do these things, you're going to be the greatest. Does that not sound like there's least in heaven and there's greatest in heaven? There is uh, aristocrat. How can I say this? Anyway, posi- yeah, hierarchy of positions that based on how you deal with what I'm going to talk about in this series. So, so you see that. I want you to know grace, salvation, it's, it's a gift that you can earn. Okay? You need to know that. Because if, I, if you don't know that and you don't have that, that's another presupposition. If you're not solid in that, you can get into works. And that is not good. And you guys know that. I talked about the religious spirit. Not good. So you don't want to go there. But, but so I want you, I, I'll probably use this quote a few times to keep us on track to remind you there's balance to this. No, salvation's a gift. But how we're going to live in, in when we're in heaven is based on how we live on earth. And there's tons of scriptures on that. Okay, so just to show you that belief, this matters for believers, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, 11. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all, say all, all. <laughs> no one is exempt. If you're a Christian, you're included in this. Contextually, I don't have time, but before this, he's talking about being at home with the Lord and outside of the body. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. It's not all good. Some people say that. That's not true. And I'll show you verses on that. The judgment seat of Christ isn't just all rewards. No. If you're, doing, if you're living bad, things, you're going to get things burnt up. You'll be saved. I'll show you the, actually, the, is it the next verse? Yeah. I'll, I'll talk about that. You're going to be saved, but everything you do in life's getting burnt up, and you're going to be least in the kingdom of heaven. So this is 1 Corinthians 3, and, I'll, and like I said, I'm just throwing these out there. I'm sowing seeds. I'm going to elaborate on a lot of this in future messages, okay? But I want you to start thinking about these things. So 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 15. This is a lot of text, but just, you can just listen. What after all is Apollos? What after all is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord is assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have the one purpose and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You're the field God's building. You're God's field God's building. By the grace of, that God has given me, I laid a foundation. Say foundation. I probably won't have time today. We'll see. But I, I want to talk about the foundation later, if, if not today, next time. I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Notice wise, because that's another thing that's always connected to this. As a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using, now listen, gold, silver, costly stones, talking about eternity, those are eternal things that are going to last Wood, hay, or straw. Their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. 
Say the day. Talking about judgment day. It's going to bring everything you do in this life to light. Everything. Whether it's hay, straw, wood, or whether it's eternal precious gold, silver, and precious stones. Okay. It'll be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. Say reward. Right? So if you build right, using these biblical principles, you're going to get a reward. If it's burnt up, the builder will suffer loss, eternal loss, but yet will be saved. Even though only is one escaping through the flames. Right? Salvation's a gift. Still going to be saved. But how you build in this life, will either, you'll either get rewards for eternity or suffer a whole bunch of loss. And it'll be all be wasted. Because you didn't build right. And I want to teach us how to build right. And there's so many scriptures on that. On how to build right. In fact, that's my next major section. What criteria will our eternal judgment be based on? And I'm going to save that for next week um, because it takes a long time. <laughs> well, maybe not that long, but longer than what we have today because I've been talking for a while. And like it's a series, so come on, I can just take my time, start off next time, everything's good. But uh, to keep you in suspense <laughs> for next week... <laughs> What criteria will our eternal judgment be based on? Thank God he tells us. In a whole bunch of different scriptures. Okay? And they're scary sometimes. Because Christians, some are going to be shocked in a dramatic way when they meet the Lord. And I want you to meditate on this, in fact. I'm not going to go into this in detail, but if you want for this week, Matthew 7, verses 21 to 20. This is one of the scariest scriptures in the Bible, I think. I'm just, I'm being honest, as a believer. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, remember the repetition. They're like, Lord, they believe it. They're saved. Lord, it's emphasized, repeated twice, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But... Think about our culture. Say a prayer. Say, Jesus is Lord, you're saved. Mm-mm. Lot of, we're, we're feeding, not we, but lots of people are feeding people lies who think they're saved and they're not. Look at this. But only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many on that day, say that day, talking about judgment day, right? On that day, uh, many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Wait, I prophesied. I drove out demons. I did miracles. Never knew you. Why? Those things are by grace. Those things are God. You can't, just because you can do miracles, that's not even you. It's the Holy Ghost. So you're not going to be judged based on things the Holy Ghost does, even if you're the catalyst or whatever, who does it, you're going to be based on how you live in this life, whether you did the will of the Father in heaven. Continued. Again, I just want you to meditate on this. This is, the, this is continuing. Um, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words, 
This is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount now. And it's scary to me that people are writing that off as Old Testament. Do you hear that doctrine? The false grace teachings teach that, some of them. That the teachings of Jesus are old covenant because it's before his resurrection. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And I'm going to show you why next time. I don't have time today. That is a lie. In fact, Matthew 11:13 says that the law and the prophets are up till John. Not after the resurrection, up till John. Everything Jesus taught is new covenant. So don't give in to those lies. If you do, you're going to suffer a lot of loss. Guaranteed. Because it's... I'll t- tell you next time, it is Jesus' words we're going to be held accountable to on Judgment Day. Jesus explicitly says that. Okay? So everyone who hears, but it's not enough to hear, hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. It's enough to hear the Sermon on the Mount. Are you doing it? we got to examine ourselves. Am I doing it? Sermon on the Mount. is like a wise man. Remember? Why wisdom comes from this. A wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it did not fall because it had its foundation, say foundation, on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine hears them, but does not put them in the practice is like a foolish man. The one who lives the 24 hours however he wants for the next thousand years, the foolish guy. The rain came, or who built his hand, uh, house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. We're going to talk about this more in this series. But this is something I want to meditate on, because these are people who think they're saved. Lord! And he's going to say, I never knew. Imagine that was you. I never knew you. You're going, you're going to be with the unbelievers. Whoa. This is why this is so critical for us to consider and constantly thinking about. Now, don't give in to this other side of things where you got to work for your salvation. No way. I would say Arminianism is error and so is Calvinism. The truth is somewhere in the middle. Because as soon as, oh, I sinned today, i got to get saved again. No way. <laughs> A lot of people teach that stuff, so no. So, the, so, the, so there's balance, and I want you to know that. you got to have faith in Christ, trust in him for your salvation. But like I said, this is an elementary teaching of Christ, and it's something we got to constantly think about. And that's why I'm going to try my best to examine these things, talk about them, so that we're not ignorant on Judgment Day, and we're not these people. This is... Jesus says few are going to find the path. Most are going on the Broadway who are leading to destruction. Few. The minority people are going to be saved, according to Jesus. This is just before this. We want to be the few, Right? So let's examine our hearts. If we're feeling conviction, that's the Holy Ghost, probably. No condemnation, <laughs> but it's just an opportunity for us to all examine ourselves, right? All right. So on that note, just like you always hear preachers, okay, I'm finishing down. It's like, oh, no, okay. Now I'm really finishing. Okay. <laughs> all right. I want to pray, okay? And, and this is, like I said, opportune time to talk about these things. It's a new year, fresh beginnings. Let's start this new year on the rock and consider how we're living now and is it impacting eternity, okay? So Father, I just thank you so much for your word, for the word of God that's clearly outlined in scripture, God. And I ask for repentance for ignoring these difficult scriptures that convict us. 
Lord, let us not be the ones who ignore them, but let us be the ones who humbly examine ourselves in the mirror of your word by your spirit so that if there's anything that's wrong in our lives, that we would repent and get back on the narrow path. Lord, let us be the few that you say are going to be the ones who stay on the straight and narrow. And let's be light to those who are going the broad way. Help us live by love, by your spirit, and in no other way. God, I pray that you guard us and protect us from getting into legalism and from getting into religion. We reject those things and we say yes to your spirit and to your scriptures and to your truth. Help us not give in to feeling condemnation. But help us be turned to you, Lord, as you desire. Help us live our lives in light of eternity. I just ask, Lord, for those that you are convicting, I just ask that you help them to, if they need to, to turn to you in whatever capacity it is they're feeling convicted about throughout this series, that we would get closer to you. And I just ask, Lord, that you give us grace to live out these difficult scriptures that are sometimes ignored, but we just say yes to your the full gospel. And we're not going to pick and choose by the grace of God, but we're going to live it by your grace. In Jesus' name, we thank you, Lord. And I just ask, God, that you help us walk this out. Whoa, by your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name, ha, amen.